Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Graham Pierre Lasso, born the 17th of October 1968 in St. Helier in Jersey in the Channel Islands. Graham is widely regarded as one of the finest English footballers from the Premier League era, having distinguished himself at both club and international level. After being spotted by former Chelsea manager John Hollins in Jersey, Graham joined Chelsea in 1987, establishing himself as a key player at Stamford Bridge before leaving and joining Blackburn Rovers in 1993. Over the course of four and a half years at Ewood Park, Graham was a key member of the side that won the Premier League title in 1995 under Kenny Dalgleish, going on to make a total of 129 league appearances for Rovers before becoming the most expensive defender in English football history with a return to Chelsea for a record £5 million. His second spell at Chelsea saw him win the League Cup and the UEFA Super Cup winners' medals in 1998, while he also played in the 2002 FA Cup final against Arsenal. At international level, he won 36 caps for England and represented his country at the 1998 World Cup Finals in France. And his performances in club football saw him elected to the PFA Team of the Year in both 1995 and 1998. Following two seasons with Southampton, Graham called time on his playing career in 2005. And since retiring from the game, he's worked in the media, commentating on football and finance. He's also written a forthright and critically acclaimed autobiography entitled Left Field, A Footballer Apart. While in 2006, he was named an ambassador for the World Wildlife Fund for Nature. On TalkSport this evening, I'm joined on My Sporting Life by former Chelsea, Blackburn and England star, Graham Lasso. You were born and grew up on the island of Jersey. Tell us about that. Well, yeah, but born in Jersey, um, had a passion for football from a very young age. My father loved the game, didn't play professionally, uh, but, but um, studied in England, in London, um, and, uh, and played a lot of football to quite a decent standard. Um, and then when he moved back to Jersey and uh, married my mum, had, had my older sister two years before me. Um, and then when I came along, I think he rubbed his hands together thinking, well, there's someone I can play football with. So we spent a huge amount of time from as young as I can remember. So it would have been sort of two, three years old playing football, whether it be on the par- in the park, on the beach, anywhere. Um, and I loved it. I've got to ask you this because, of course, probably the nearest professional football team to where you were born is probably Le Havre. Uh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, I would think it probably would be, yeah, yes. Yeah. So who did you support as a boy? Well, I grew up sort of, and most football fans will hate me for this, yeah. <laughs> because I grew up supporting everyone and anyone. Because football obviously wasn't on the television as much as, as it is no, now. No, no. But it, it used to be a, a, a sort of almost a religious event for me to watch football matches, particularly football matches, particularly as I sort of, you know, got to the age of sort of seven, eight, when I was really engaged with, with the profession. Um, so cup finals I would watch and I would pick a team. And so... I loved any football. I had um, in my wall in my bedroom, my dad 
built one, one wall out of chipboard on one side so that I could put posters from Roy of the Rovers and shoot up. Brilliant. And I used to just, you know, every couple of weeks redecorate that wall and I'd have pictures of all teams, you name them, I had them, right. and individuals as well. So I think probably the, the most bizarre team I supported uh, was in 1978. And bizarre in the sense that I had no relationship with this, this place was Scotland in the World Cup. And um, and I, you know, my dad got me a, a, a sort of a, a cheap Scotland shirt. The badge was the size of a dartboard. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, and because the Scotland team had a, a huge Liverpool um, representation, and and I was a, I, I like Liverpool the most because they were on the television the most, and clearly they were the best team mm-hmm. at that 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 time. Um, the fact that half of that Liverpool team were in the Scotland team meant that I sort of felt I, I could be a genuine Scotland supporter for the World Cup. Talk to me then about, about the island of Jersey, because uh, I think a lot of people's view of it is based on Bergerac, if you don't mind me saying, mm. including my mum's. Um, <laughs> and and yet, I think people would be surprised at how close it is to France. You don't vote in the British general election. You have your own parliament. What was it like being? What was it like growing up in Jersey? Well, it was very... In hindsight, it was a very special place to grow up in because I had a huge opportunity to get to know my community, um, grow up in a very safe environment in terms of you know good friendship groups, good schools. I went to a state school um, all the way through um, and 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 finished my A levels um, in the island. So I had good friendship groups, good school education that was you took for granted I suppose you didn't you didn't think well you know we're a struggling school or aren't we lucky because we we've got some playing fields um and uh I just I just felt that I had a I had the perfect environment to really develop my interests um the outdoor space that we had access to was incredible so good weather the beaches the yeah the beaches of St Juan's which is the west coast you've got a five mile beach that was my playground and we used to, you know, we used to spend summer's days, winter's days down there. I'd go down there on my bike. And um, it was just, it was, it was for me, a, a, a sort of a, a place that really defined who I was going to be, whether that was football or not. Um, it, it, it gave me all my interests that I still have now. So which when are you, which, well, you mentioned the World Wildlife Fund. Yeah. So I've always had a, a real interest in the environment because, that, yeah. because it, you know, I was around it all the time. And if there if there was a, an oil spill in the English Channel, that directly affected us on the island because we couldn't eat seafood, right. and um, so it affected the economy of the island. So at a very young age, you realise the connection between what we do as people and, and the, the potential damage um, to the environment. So so that was one area that I thought actually this is um, you know this is something I'm going to go on and, and maybe do as a, a, get involved with as a career. I st- I studied environmental studies at Kingston. Um, alongside because I never thought I was actually going to make it as a football player so I thought well I can't waste time when I've got it so I I did about a year and a half of a part-time degree but so all in all Jersey was 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 absolutely sort of um, uh, you know it's, it's, it's what built me it's the island and the people of the island that built me the the, the person and, and and I'll never lose that Graham we talked earlier on about being football mad on Jersey, it's still a long way from Jersey to London and playing for Chelsea, but you managed it. How, how did that happen? Well, I was uh, just finishing my A-levels um, in Jersey um, and uh, I'd had a, a very good season by, by Jersey standards and hadn't realised, but I'd won uh, six competition or I'd been part of a team that had won six competitions at junior and senior level. Um, so I'd won the league with both my team at junior and senior level, St Paul's. 
Um, there's a there's a game that you play against the winners of the Guernsey League at junior and senior level. I called imagine that's Upton. brutal. Yeah, that's brutal. So the winners of the Guernsey League against the winners of the Jersey League at both senior and junior level. So that was the Upton, and I won both of those as well with the teams I was in. And then you have the Marathi, the world famous Marathi, which is the fight between Jersey and Guernsey that is held on an annual basis, and it alternates islands. Right. Um, is that still going on? It's still going on. Yeah, Good. it's still going on. And I I played once for each the the junior team and the senior team and that was that year uh both games i think were in guernsey and uh, and won those as well so in that one season i i basically got a full house of yeah. um trophies they had um player of the year um in jersey but this is how traditional conservative places work because i was under 18 i wasn't allowed to win the senior player of the year on the island even though i was playing you're obviously football. the best player on the island, yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't even allowed to go because I was under 18 and um, and there was alcohol being served. <laughs> so I didn't even go. But thankfully, the one person who did go who was really significant in this story was John Hollins. He was asked to go over to present Player of the Year. Right. And he um, did a, a, an after-dinner speech. And fortunately for me, three or four different people, completely unprompted, said, we've got this young wow. lad, Graham Lasseau, and after, I think, the third or fourth person, the penny dropped that actually there might be something in this. And he took my club secretary's phone number, did the, did the evening, flew back to London. This is Chelsea manager. Mm-hmm. And had the presence of mind or the, um, you know, the, the, he, he felt that he had to, you know, follow it up. And he, he phoned them and said, look, we'll get him over for trial for a week. So I then got a call from St. Paul's club secretary saying... You know, they want you to go over for a trial. And I was instantly excited and petrified at the same time. I, I got flown over um, and had a week's trial at, at, at Chelsea and ran around like an idiot. All I was interested in was, you know, just running around and showing how desperate I was. And it worked. Well, that, that goes a long way, I think. <laughs> it Effort goes a long way. With well, I was, I was the worst player there. I had, you know, that's, that's, that's uh, had to be the case. Um, but I, sh- I, you know, I was so enthusiastic, sh- so passionate about it. And, and obviously he saw something and, and decided that I was worth taking a chance on. The funny thing was I failed by a few percent uh, my biology A-level. So I wanted to retake it. And so I had a, a sort of awkward conversation where I didn't want him to th- feel I didn't want to sign. But again, credit to John, and it shows what he is as an individual. No, he's a great man. He said, absolutely, retake it and then come and sign for us in November or early December when you get your result and make sure you pass it. And I did. So I signed in December. Um, and uh, six months later, he got sacked. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll, come so, on to, we'll come on to that. Um, you continued your studies, though, for a while. And part of this reputation that you got among other footballers and indeed have played up to the title of your book you know you're an outsider into the normal mm. football lifestyle you didn't live in digs and things like that well I did initially mm-hmm. um, I lived in uh, up, up in North London Burnt Oak which is nowhere near Harlington and it's very to... it's very north very north as well <laughs> yeah. yeah so it's nowhere near Harlington where we used to train but one of the guys who worked for Chelsea had a brother who had a house and they put up apprentices. All right. So I got stuffed in there with, with this uh, lovely family, mm-hmm. but it was a, it was a packed house. Um, and it used to take me an hour and a half to get to training on a couple of trains, buses, and end up at Harlington, which is near Heathrow. Mm. And then I used to get a lift back into London after training with one of the players um, quite, uh, Perry Digweed, the goalkeeper, was yeah. was at Chelsea um, for a spell, and he used to give me a lift back in. And he had a he had a pit bull terrier that he would bring 
to the training ground with him. And I used to have to sit in his sporty either Ford Escort XR3i or um, you know Volkswagen Golf GTI, whatever it was. I had to sit in this car in the passenger seat and be grateful with this Pitbull Terrier sat on my lap <laughs> looking at it and it sort of just dribbling thinking, I've heard things about these dogs. Yeah. I don't think this is going to further my career if I get on the wrong side of it. But that was my sort of my round trip on a daily basis was you know, uh, Burnt Oak to Harlington, Harlington into Fulham Broadway, and then the tube back across London. I was getting paid a pittance, which didn't matter. Um, and I saved up and saved up and saved up, and I bought a Sony Walkman cassette player, which I still have to this day. Really? Still have it to this day. It even had a rechargeable battery. It cost me over £100, which then is. was a fortune. Um, it was the best thing in the world for me to become a professional football player. I never thought it was going to last. When I signed my contract with Chelsea... They offered me a three-year contract. I've already, you know, accepted it. Mm. I would have paid them if I could have, if I had money. You spent to, all your to money on the Walkman, yeah. Yeah, but, but it certainly wasn't for the money. It was for the opportunity. They offered me a three-year contract, and there's this 18-year-old kid with no experience at all from Jersey who's now discussing with the Chelsea club secretary who does contracts almost every day of the week. And I said to him, I'm really sorry, don't take this the wrong way, but I can only sign two years. And he said, why on earth would you do that? We're offering you three mm. years. And I said... If I'm not good enough to improve in two years, I'm not going to be good enough in three years. So I was, I was, and it wasn't arrogance. It was, it was the reality that I could afford to waste two years trying to live my dream, but three years as an 18-year-old was a heck of a long time. So I decided two years was the was the right option. They accepted that, and with it, within a year, they'd offer me a new contract. Chelsea is now a sort of super club, and mm. they're about to build some kind of futuristic uh, <laughs> spaceship uh, down on the Fulham Broadway. <laughs> What kind of club was it when you arrived there? I mean, they were relegated soon after you arrived, weren't they? No, I mean, you weren't in the team or anything, but they went down, didn't they? They were. Um, and it was, in hindsight, it was awful. You know, it was, it was one of the worst places to go, I think, as a young player because it was dysfunctional in terms of the culture of the dressing room. There was a lot of problems there, a lot of characters that, you know, had, you know, they weren't, certainly weren't pulling together um, in the same way. There were quite regular sort of fights, you know, in, in training. There were little cliques and groups. And I walked in and I was so disappointed because I, not, not after the first few weeks, but I thought, is this really life as a professional footballer? I thought everyone would just be working really hard together. Like to in try Royal and be Rovers. The, yeah, to try and be the best. And I've come in and I'm thinking, you know, you've got all these different groups of players going out all the time. There was a, there was a converted bus up the road from the training ground um, and it was converted into a greasy... Um, uh, a greasy spoon, spoon cafe, cafe. Yeah. Um, and the players used to meet there a group of them before training have their cooked breakfast and then come to training and then maybe go back there um, after training for, for a bit of lunch that was that was the sort of the, the, the regular routine so it was it was a really tough environment and I didn't fit in with anybody because I wasn't an apprentice because I was I, I signed professional terms because of my age and I certainly wasn't a professional because I didn't, that was a different world. You know, players like Tony DiRigo and um, Kerry Dixon, people like that, you know, some really good players. The one person, there were a couple of people that, that really um, helped me. One was a, a guy called Dave Jones, um, who was a, um, a centre forward um, who didn't really ever make it. Um, but he befriended me. He lived in Hendon. So he befriended me. So we sort of got to know each other um, quite well out away from um, football. The other person, as my, my career started to develop, the other person that really was a trailblazer for me and was somebody that I looked at and I thought, crikey, if he can be himself and be as successful as he, he is, he's far more intelligent, intellectual, 
um, and cultured than I am. So if he can do it, I can definitely do it. And that was Pat Nevin. Pat well, Nevin. Of course, you were both at the same club at together. At the same time. That's too much. One encouraging the other. <laughs> yeah, that's too much left field alternative it thinking. Is. But Pat and I, I, I got to know him really well. It took a long time. He's a lovely man. Instantly. And he he helped me in so many ways without realising it. He, you know, he was he he was really into the London scene. He was big mates with John Peel. Um, I can remember being on the New Musical Express when we put him on the cover, the first post-punk footballer. Yeah. Sat in his great big Echo and the Bunnymen coat on the seat of some. On the, he was on the stairs of, one, of the National Gallery. Yeah. In his big in his big overcoat. Yeah. yeah. And he, he was a fantastic role model. Good for footballer me. too. Yeah. Oh, a brilliant football player. Yeah. And and he got to know me really by after training. He used to try. He used to stay out and practice, which was was unheard of in those days. What stay out after the manager's blown the whistle? What are you mad? <laughs> and Pat used to say to me as a young fullback you know will you stay out and and i'm gonna you know use you as a, as a bit of cannon fodder for my crossing and shooting practice and i'm gonna skin you alive and if you ask him he'll say that it started off very much with him having the advantage but he said on a on a daily basis when we did this he noticed me getting better and better and harder to get past but i was learning i had a thirst for knowledge and that is i think again an essential part of anybody's development is never losing that that thirst to to learn and get better if you're struggling to lose weight you've probably heard about weight loss medications like wigovi or zepbound and you might be wondering if they're right for you meet plush care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Having heard about uh, your career, first career at Chelsea, you joined Blackburn in March of 1993. Did you know you were joining a club that was on the up and up? Really on the up and up? It was funny because I'd, I'd, I was having a difficult time at Chelsea. Um, they had essentially told me that I could uh, I, I could go. There were a few clubs that were interested, uh, Blackburn being one of them. Um, but as soon as I sort of did my own little bit of research on, on well, firstly, where was Blackburn? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm not even joking. I knew it was sort of Manchester area, but yeah. I didn't know where. But then when I looked at the players that they had and, and what they'd been doing, and then, obviously, knowing that Kenny Dalglish was the manager, I thought this club 
has got a huge potential. I started watching a couple of their games that were on television um, and really was impressed by the way they were playing. If you go back to my childhood, Kenny was one of my heroes. And so that was a an open door just needing to be pushed from my point of view. And I felt that the fact that he was interested gave me a huge amount of confidence in a period of my career where I wasn't that confident. Well, given that you weren't a regular or you were in and out of the team at Chelsea, what, what had Dalglee seen in you, Graham? Do well, you know? between him and Ray Harford, yeah. you know, they were a fantastic team, the two of them. And Ray was a wonderful, wonderful coach. And they'd obviously seen my potential. I was, I was in and out of the team at Chelsea. In my six years at Chelsea, my first spell, I'd played probably 100 games, I would think, over that period of time, which wasn't a lot given you know how long I'd been at the club. Um, and But I'd done enough for them to, to see something that they liked. So I went up to, uh, to Blackburn, uh, transfer deadline day, uh, under quite a lot of pressure to, to, to sign, actually. Mm-hmm. And I uh, agreed terms. They didn't pay a lot of money for me. I think the fee was about £400,000, plus a player, which was a player called Steve Livingston, who Chelsea fans still talk to me about yeah. today, because I don't think he played for Chelsea once. He spent more time in the gym than he did on the football Bless pitch. Him. And uh, I never met Steve. You know, We were involved in this life-changing transaction, and we never even met each That's other. That's footballer's fate, isn't it, yeah, I'm afraid? We probably passed on the M6 or yeah. something. So, um, so, so I sat down with Kenny, and all I was interested in you know, from from my point of view, in terms of you know, not the not the the, the contract or the fees or or what have you, was where he was going to play me, and he said to me, "I see you as a left back." He said, "It doesn't mean I won't play you out of position, but if I do, it's my responsibility." He said, "But you're coming here to be my left back," and it just gave me that focus, that confidence, and trust in him that I was there for that reason, and. Myself and Kevin Gallagher signed on the same day, on that deadline day, and they paid a lot of money from Kevin from mm-hmm. Coventry, and he was a fantastic player, a horrific broken leg further down the line, but was a tremendous player. We made our debut that Saturday, so we signed on maybe the Tuesday or Wednesday. We trained for a couple of days, got to see the, got to train with the players, and then played on Saturday against Liverpool, so my sort of boyhood team almost, and they were a good Liverpool side, and we beat them. Kevin and I in that game were both given man of the match um, and that was the start of what was to be a process of becoming an international footballer essentially and you you joined that team where Shearer had joined the, the summer before um, Tim Sherwood was there Stuart Ripley Mike Newell Kevin Gallagher who you mentioned mm. Jason Wilcox Colin Henry Colin Henry May. and in that first year there Blackburn, I think people forget when they talk about the following year when they won the title, and we'll come on to that. Yeah, two years. Yeah. It took us two more years yeah, before yeah, we won the right. title. So that year, the first year you were there, they very nearly won the title. Blackburn we finished Rovers. fourth. Yeah. Second year we finished, that we were there, we finished second, mm-hmm. and then the third year. So it was a we, process, we, yeah? So it was a process. And it's funny that the, the things that stand out to me more than anything was everybody was committed to the same, what we wanted to achieve. And I know that's you should you should almost expect that of, of everybody. But everyone's baggage was left at the door and we went in and we gave everything to each other with honesty. Kenny set the standard. He was he he was incredibly focused on details. And he could he could really wind you up sometimes, Kenny, because it would he'd moan about a throw in. You know, you might be losing two nil with two mistakes, but he'd come in and have a go. I remember he had a go at me once in that situation and he had a go at me about a throw in and I felt like saying hang on I'm not responsible for the two goals but I sat there as a good professional took it and then it was only when I got home after the game when I was replaying it all through my head I thought you know what he's right because a throw in 
is a set piece. You shouldn't give somebody a bad throw in. So it is about the details. The other thing that stood out to me from the moment I went there about the culture of, of, of our team and the club um, was the fact that once we got the first game out of the way with I had a full week's training with the team and I was shattered. It was like I was playing a match every single day. So the intensity of the training compared to what I'd left behind at Chelsea was another level. And that, that sort of stereotypical sort of um, uh, phrase about, you know, you, you're, only as, you're only as good as your training or you can't turn it on and off like a tap, all yeah. of that sort of thing. Um, it's, it's, it's absolutely true because training was at such a high standard that it was only natural that we would perform at that level. And if you watch... Any of those games during that three seasons where we eventually won the Premier League, we were physically stronger than our team. We, the teams we played against, we were sharper, we were quicker making decisions. And all that was down to the environment of, of training and that will to win that we had and the quality of players that we had as well. You're obviously becoming a better player and you're in a better team. It's during this flowering, if you like, of Blackburn Rovers. In March of 94, you start to play for England. Yeah, um, and it was, again, an incredible... Um, incredibly quick transition for me within six months really of, of being in the uh, or within a year of being in the Blackburn um, side I'm, I'm suddenly playing for or getting a call up for the England team and I played, yeah. played under 21s I'd played B team all of which were really important um, parts of, of, of my process um, and Terry Venables yeah when he took over um, he he called me into his first squad and Terry you know, I look back on the managers that I had and he, you know, Kenny Dugleish and Ray were a great partnership and, and were instrumental in my success. But Terry, from an international point of view and a personal development point of view, was the most important coach that I worked with. And it was funny because <laughs> I was packing all my stuff up to go down to England and um, I could hear someone in the showers. I was the last one to leave. I could hear someone in the showers. And as I was leaving, it was Kenny. And he went, Graham, Graham. I won't do a Scottish accent, it's very bad. No. Um, and uh, and I sort of stuck my head around the corner, sort of careful where I looked. <laughs> and uh, and he said, oh, good luck with your England call-up. And I was like, oh, thanks, boss. And I was a bit confused because that's not like Kenny. Obviously, no, he's quite. so patriotic to Scotland. Yeah. Uh, fair to say, he's not. England aren't his team. No. Um, so I thought, well, that's a bit nice. Better get out whilst I can. And as I turned and started to take a couple of steps, he went, Graham, Graham. And I turned around and he went, I hope you get effing stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> He's a great man. You played you played the the first eight games of, of Venables' reign, keeping one Stuart Pearce out of the England team. Mm. Uh, about more later, I'm sure. And it was during that time um, that you scored your only goal for England. It was in a, an Umbro Cup tournament um, when Brazil came to Wembley. I've got <laughs> to ask you this question. Normally, when I say to people, "What was it like playing for your country?" they literally burst with pride and they clutched their chest where the badge was. But you're not from the English mainland. You're, <laughs> you're called Pierre Lasseau. Was it the same for you? Seriously? Absolutely it was. I, I think in some ways I was under even more pressure because not only was I playing for England, but I was playing for Jersey as well. Okay. And so I was... I Listen, I'll always be a Jerseyman before I'm an Englishman. Um, but the connection between, you know, my professional ambitions and the England national team would be as strong as anyone else. I was so proud um, of every game that I played for England. And it's hard sometimes to really... not It's not so much to appreciate it, but to be... to really take it all in. Because part of being a professional anybody is having confidence that that's what you do. So you mustn't get overwhelmed by um, the situation. 
So it has to, in some ways, with a small, very small end, become normal. You know, this is what I do. This is what I'm good at. So bursting with pride, absolutely, um, but focused on being the right person and doing the right job and having that calmness to perform is is really important. But you know, what an what an honour. You know, to to be named the best player in that position for one game, let alone six years, is 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 a tremendous honour. We've now come to the 1994-95 season. I think what we see here. If you think about the traditional powerhouses in the game in this country, Liverpool, Manchester United, Arsenal, Tottenham, Everton, Chelsea, name them, you know, the teams that have over the years won a title or two. For Blackburn to come under Jack Walker's money, all the rest of it, and Kenny Dalglish and win that title was incredible. Did you know, going into that season, having been runners-up the previous year, that you were, you were going to be the, the best team in England? We didn't. We had confidence in our in ourselves we'd built a, a, a head of steam in terms of you know the two previous seasons we were all very much in tune the squad had been strengthened and that's one thing chris jack sutton did do chris sutton in, yeah. um he brought in um, there were a few players that, that came in the the frustration for me was that after we won the title that people said oh jack walker bought the league but when you look at the players that they brought in, yes, they did break the British transfer record for Alan Shearer and they broke it again, I think, um, for, for, for somebody else. We spent quite a lot of money on, on Tim Flowers in, in goal. Well, let me tell you, just to put, prove <clears> your point, the team that uh, finishes runners-up is transformed into the champions of England by the very expensive acquisition of Chris Sutton for £5 million mm. from Norwich. And that summer, they bought Robbie Slater from Lens for five hundred grand. Tony Gale was a free from West Ham, who went on to win a championship medal as well there at the back. Yeah, and it was it was an incredible um, sort of scouting exercise um, that had been established from you know when they'd bought bought in players like myself two seasons prior. So it was the type of of um, spirit that we had, as I said, the confidence, the understanding, the quality. I mean, Alan couldn't appreciate it at the time. Alan was just relentless. Alan Shearer with his mm. goals. It took players like myself. The right back, the two wingers, you know, whether it's Jason Wilcox and, and Stuart Ripley predominantly, you know, we provided a huge amount of chances. Our role was to provide service Crosses, for, yeah. for, for him uh, predominantly, but Mike Newell, Chris Sutton when he came along, Kevin, yeah. and Kevin Gallagher. Uh, he, was, he was incredible, Alan, when you look at the goals that he scored. Um, but, you know, it was a team built on all the right principles. And that season... Manchester United were a machine. They'd proven it the year before. They've proven it subsequently. And that year was no different. We got ourselves ahead um, sort of post-Christmas. We got through tough Christmas. Everybody contributed. It felt like well, everyone was was really believing we could win it. Up to a point, Graham, because in that foot, you, you had a brilliant start. You had a very good start to the season. And you're right. You only lost two matches in the first half of the season. Both to Manchester United. You lost home and away to Manchester United. Wow! And, and, that, that, <laughs> and before Christmas. Yeah, which is again, you would look at that and think, oh, "Well, you're not, you can't win the league if you can't beat your main rival." You'd but you won every points, other game. But we won every other game. And the other thing, Danny, that stands out to me—it seems such a long time ago now, probably because it is. Yeah. <laughs> With I don't want to admit it. Um, was that we played the same, whether we played at home or we played away. And I mean that in every sense of the word. We didn't go to a to, to, in a to an away match thinking, well, let's let's sit back for ten minutes, absorb the crowd, get them quiet. We played the same football at home as we did away, and we were we we were just a powerful, strong, tight group. The, the way I would say it was, it was a high energy four four two, and and with Colin Hendry defending the goal. That was, <laughs> that's how I would describe your team. 
Um, you went top on November the 26th and were never headed again. But I want to talk about something else that happened. How critical or uncritical was the moment when Eric Cantona went into the crowd at Crystal Palace? It could have been critical from a Manchester United point of view. Um, it didn't register on my radar as as a player. I I didn't think, oh, we've you know this improves our chances of winning. Once we were ahead, and this is where I I look at clubs now to the in the present day and think if you've not been there, it's tough. It's it's one thing following; it is a different thing leading. And it, it is amazing how the pressure changes. Nobody wants to leave and, this year. And exactly, everyone's trying the best not to be in that position. But and and not us not having that experience. Kenny was the only person as the manager who had had that experience of winning um, regularly. You know the, mm. the, the 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 division, um, and it required all of his leadership skills to, I think, get us through that. And even then, we got we when we got to that last month, that last six weeks, we. We were so close to letting it slip through our hands. Well, let me explain to people. I mean, let's say Cantona got banned. You went top in the end of November and kept going. You had early cup exits, which you may argue helped you. And then you got to the final six games of the season, and it was a, a disaster. You picked up just seven points, winning two and losing three, so that we got to the final weekend of the season in which either you or Manchester United could be champions. You were two points ahead. You were at Liverpool. And Manchester United had to go to West Ham United. What do you remember about that day? I remember trying to prepare for that game in the same way I prepared for every other game mm-hmm. and not look at it as a as a cup final, as a winner-takes-all, even though that's what it was. Try to relax, uh, playing at Anfield. Again, Liverpool provides a backdrop for my whole career, really, yeah. or my whole life. And going to Anfield, knowing that they, in a way... They wouldn't want Manchester United to win. The fans certainly didn't want Manchester United to, to to win the Premier League. But at the same time, the professional nature of everybody, including the fans, meant that they want their team to win as, as much as we want our team to win. And it was a bizarre atmosphere. You didn't quite know where to position yourself mentally for the game. And that was as individuals and as a team. So we tried so hard, all of us, to go onto that pitch with a clear mind, um, and the first half we we played we played well. It was a bizarre atmosphere. It wasn't the usual Anfield atmosphere. It was a bit more subdued, a bit more uncertain. Because I don't think the fans even knew how to behave. No, and, and Alan Shearer scored in the first half. Down in London, Hughes of West Ham had uh, scored early, um, which meant at half time. And I don't know whether you knew this at half time. You were winning, they were losing. You were going to be champions of England. Well, we. Uh, we did know. Um, we certainly knew we were winning. Yeah, well done, well done. Very <laughs> clear-minded. <Ripley>, Stuart Ripley <laughs> came in and said, my bloody legs weren't work. And he was one of the fittest guys in the team. And, and he just yeah, said he was tension. so stressed because you've played all those games. And so it's it. there's more at stake than a cup final because it's taken you the whole season to get into this position. Um, so again, it was a case of at half-time trying to just reset your brain and focus on on, on what you were doing not what was going on um, down at, at West Ham. So the second half couldn't have gone any worse for us because 
uh, Jamie Redknapp, I think it was, scored. No, Barnes um, equalised. Barnes equalised. Barnes equalised. And we immediately hit the panic button because we're thinking, you know, can we still win if 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 we draw and Manchester United win? And and Brian McClare equalised early in the piece at, at Upton Park for for Manchester. Did you know that on the pitch? The I cream? don't. I personally didn't know that, and no. I was on the opposite side to our bench in the right, second half. Right. Right. So I was the furthest away. So whether or not. It found its way onto the pitch. I'm not sure. The Blackburn fans were in a little corner, sort of as you come out of the tunnel um, to the left in that corner. So they were opposite me as well. And occasionally you'd look at them for to see if they were behaving in a, you know, it was like, it was like, um, who's his name? Morris, the uh, social anthropologist. Yeah, yeah. Desmond Morris. Desmond Morris, I yeah. was doing my own bit of Fuck social anthropology. Yeah. yeah, my own social anthropology on our own fans whilst the game's going Are they going happy? On. Are they Are sad? They, what's, what's going on there? What's the body language in that corner? Famously, of course, Jamie Redknapp scored right in the end of the game. And I was, I was in the wall. Right. And you stand there in the wall with your hands in front You're of you. You're not really big enough for the wall. No, Graham, I was on the end. Go. I was All on right, the end. Okay. Yeah. So you stood there with your hands in front of your essentials. Yeah. And uh, you, you know, you know, through years of experience, as soon as he hit that ball and it sort of it, its trajectory over my head, I just thought it's low enough in. to go in there, isn't That's it? That's yeah. going in. And and I turned. Tim flowers. And, and, and he got a bit of a hand to it. Yes. Yeah. And it's it nestles in the corner, and collectively, even the Liverpool fans and the Liverpool players were like. Oh no, you know that's it. They've lost, and because I don't think we had a shot in the second half. No, no. <laughs> um, and uh, and as we were going back up the pitch to to, to take the kick off, kick yeah. off, waiting for the referee to blow the final whistle to say, "Well, look, you've you've just lost the Premier League." Our fans went from being you know suicidal to suddenly it started coming through on the radios, started to sort of make a the noise final whistle and, had gone up to park uh, exactly, and they'd they'd only managed to draw. We went from, you know, having having to contemplate the fact we've 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 lost the Premier League on the last game of the season, to then having to take a kickoff, a meaningless kickoff, and I think it was David Ellery was the referee, and I'm sure I said to him, David, can you not just blow the whistle? And David, being the professional that he is, said, no, 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 we've still got you know 38 seconds to play. You know, you've got to you've got to take the kickoff, and yeah. we're all sort of trying to celebrate. And even the Liverpool players, Stephen McManaman, came up to me and brilliant. You really deserved it. So it was just a bizarre set of circumstances. It was one of, I mean, up up to up to Aguero and <laughs> and Michael Thomas is all up for grabs now. It's one of the most amazing afternoons in English football. Alex Ferguson wasn't best pleased, particularly. I mean, your hero that day was Ludic McClosco, the West Ham goalkeeper. He was. Put- uh, we sent him uh, sent him champagne afterwards. <laughs> he was heroic in 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 the goal. Um, made some fantastic saves but I think it'd be really interesting to ask Sir Alex about whether he really felt that we deserved that I know he wouldn't probably admit it in public but we deserve to win that how do you look back on that now Graham when you think about it it's, 20, it's 21 years ago now we had the reunion last last year 20 year reunion and it was funny to see you know some of those guys that I haven't seen for that length of time but what it what it does do for me and you'd never re- appreciate this at the time and this is somebody for all current players and all future players is that if you're fortunate enough to win the Premier League or win, you know, um, competitions, you become part of a club that stays with you for the rest of your life. And so for me to be part of that club is is still to this day and, and you know, going on in the future will always be something um, very, very special, something you can't understand until afterwards, until you're, you know, I'm 10 years out of the career now. But to be part of that club um, and to have that relationship with the Premier League um, is is something. It's the gift that keeps giving. Where's your medal? 
My medal's in a bag, a kit bag, along with my caps with all my other medals. Um, You're not one for the trophy cabinets? No. Okay. No. It would be fair to say that many onlookers would have expected a club backed by Jack Walker's money to have gone on to dominate English football, maybe even Europe. It didn't really work out like that. <laughs> That's an understatement, isn't it? I think we uh, we came back after winning the Premier League in 95 and realised very quickly that the atmosphere had changed. Kenny had moved upstairs and gone from being the manager to uh, the director of football. Ray Harford took over as, as manager um, and... I think it's fair to say that he didn't have the same skills that Kenny had. Uh, they were very different people, had different, very different styles. And the main reason I think we, we weren't able to continue in, in the same way was the fact that the club didn't go into the market and buy anyone. We had a great opportunity when we won the league to, mm-hmm. to sort of use that as a springboard. Um, but the club, in their defence, they were being very loyal to the team that had won the league, but they didn't really refresh the the squad and Which you just seem to have to do look at Chelsea this very season yeah and it's a ruthless that's a ruthless um, sort of stance to take but I think it's the right one Ferguson was great at it yeah exactly and we didn't do that so the beginning of that next season was poor the fact that the dressing room became unstable because Kenny wasn't there and, and as I said Ray's skills weren't maybe management um for all his quali- other qualities. As a coach, that wasn't yeah. yeah, that wasn't one of them. And very quickly, we started to get groups forming within the dressing room. Um, and as results got worse, those groups became a little bit more uh, sort of confrontational between each other. Did you join a group or you were a man not, alone? Not really. I mean, there were there were a few of us, I think, that, that were there that weren't part of a, a particular group, you know, the alpha male group particularly, that that, that started to dominate the, the dressing room. And... And I just feel that there, you started to get these issues that were coming, started appearing within training, after games, comments that were made, and attitudes started changing, and that 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 whole team ethos started to to break down a little bit. Plus, when you add into the mix the huge amount of disappointment that we all felt because we'd won the league and then we we didn't go on and use it as a springboard, no, I just you, think you, broke you, the atmosphere. You lost five of the first eight games of the following season, so you're always playing catch up. You had a disastrous campaign in the Champions League. Um, losing, I think three of the first, mm. lost the first three games, um, and not to AC Milan either, to, to teams that you would expect to beat. In the middle of that, there was a game against Spartak, Spartak and, Moscow, yeah, Spartak yeah, Moscow, where now you've always been temperamental sort of football, <laughs> Graham. You got into plenty of trouble at Chelsea. You like you like to stand up for yourself, but it was rare in a Champions League game to see somebody break their hand punching a teammate. <laughs> you punched David Bakhti and broke your arm, uh, broke your hand. Tell me about that. Yeah, I think that was the uh, the the final straw in in what what had been going on. I have to sort of preface this story with uh, with the fact that it was the most embarrassing thing I've ever done on a football pitch, and I took responsibility for it afterwards and uh, took the sort of requisite punishment that I got. Um, but like everything, there's there's reasons for these things happening, um, and because of the breakdown between members of the team, because of the fact that we felt people. All of us, I think, felt that that people weren't necessarily taking responsibility and actually pointing fingers at other people. Um, that all was sort of creating a frustration and a tension. David and I had had a couple of run-ins. Um, we, we played a game at Ewood Park where he said something to me, which I can't quite remember, in the first half. But I remember going into the dressing room and in front of everybody else at halftime saying, right, you said that to me on the pitch, say that in front of everyone now, and he didn't. Um, 
we then had a training session where we had a bit of a collision and and it, and it got a bit heated, shall we say? That tension oh, it's was like there. a build up to a big absolutely, fire. absolutely, it was. Yeah, <laughs> and 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 the thing is, sort of going to my point, that's where if you've got a very experienced manager, they would pick up on that and, and deal, somehow, deal, yeah. deal with it. And and it wasn't it wasn't just David and I. There were other things going on as well between other players. That were building up to this this yes, situation. Yes, 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 Your Honour. And what, then, <laughs> what, what, what was the spark that made you want to well, hit him? Well, then the the fight, the sort of the perfect storm was in Moscow. We were we were, as you said, we were playing terribly. We were really not playing with any confidence. Morale was low. We went to Moscow, and it was a tough game. And we both were running for the same ball, collided, and when we picked ourselves up, the way he came at me and the way I was feeling meant that I just instinctively defended myself and I hit him. Um, and if you look at if you look at the tape, which, you know, mm. hopefully you won't need to. It's on YouTube, everybody. It's on YouTube, <laughs> everybody. It really is. But if you look at it, you see Tim Sherwood, who was one of David's closest allies. Um, the way he came up to me, it looks like he's going to hit me. Yeah. And he was the captain. Obviously um, not a good time at Blackburn. No, and, and, and again, it just sort of sums up the tension. As soon as, as, soon as I'd struck him, I realised I'd broken a bone in my hand. Because you know I hadn't yeah. learned how to punch properly, sure. Um, and and it was it it was it 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 diffused the the situation in terms of you know the the tension had been taken out of the situation because we were all in shock about what had happened. I struggled to get to half time with this bone bouncing around in my hand, um, and went to the dressing room. At which point we just all sat there, not knowing how to deal with it. So it was it was silence. I mean, I I tried to apologise. Um, I started the second half but didn't continue and then all hell broke loose afterwards because the press that were there got on the coach, they tried to interview me on the coach, they broke all protocol, um, I obviously I got home, I, I buried myself at home for the day, the, the funny thing is, this is everything, says everything about me, is that the one person I was dreading talking to above anyone else was my own dad, mm -hmm. I was so mortified that I'd, I'd let him down and that he was exposed to what I'd done. Um, and, and I just had, because I've got ultimate respect for my father, and he was the one person I didn't want to talk to. I sort of, I, I really did. I sort of buried myself at home for that day and I, I didn't answer any calls. I picked up, I did eventually pick up the phone to my dad and in typical parent style, he was as good as gold. And David and I, funny enough, um, immediately it happened. We both had a chat after the game. Obviously, it was a bit too late then, but... It reset the respect we had for each other. And in a funny way, I'm not advocating this behaviour, but it needed to happen if only it happened at the training ground, in the privacy of the training ground, it would have been manageable. The fact that it happened in front of 20 million television viewers in a Champions League game in Moscow was clearly not the right stage. But it just goes to show that you know it wasn't premeditated. It wasn't something that I did with, with you know, Thinking that it, the, the consequences weren't important, it, it was. It, it was, as I said, it was the most embarrassing thing, and the thing I I regret the most in in a sense because it was my own teammate. Later on, we're going to talk about the trouble you had with other footballers because they decided to pretend that you were gay. We'll hear about a punch up you had with Mauricio Tarico. <laughs> um, and when we talked about this off air, you and I, um, you you made the point to me. And you talked about your dad there that some of the things that you think that go on with you um not necessarily anger but just the way you are as a person maybe to do with the fact that most of us listening to this now won't be able to get to uh, associate ourselves with you because we won't know won't be able to empathize your mum died when you were a teenager mm, that's right and it's funny because 
that's a defining moment in anybody's life losing losing a parent you know when you're 13 or you know there are there are certain um specific i think parts of of that experience that 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 are different to somebody who loses a parent either younger or older i i sort of always sort of reflect on the impact of that um and always have done um of of that on my of on who i am and also my football career um and you were 13 i was 13 yeah and and i was always you know my dad reassures me that i was feisty before mum died don't you know so don't don't that's no no excuse (laughs) um i was incredibly competitive because i had an older sister i still have an older sister obviously um two years older than me so you know coming into the sort of world with a with a sister who's two years older than you that is very sporty you know um very academic as well talented she was my reference point and my competition so from the age of whatever i was competing against her and so that was you know before my my mum dying i think when my mum died dealing with that and having to internalize all of all of that grieving process we had no support my dad remarkable job that he did with the three of us i've got a younger sister as well you know it was just absolutely phenomenal but um you know we didn't have the support um that 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 we get now thankfully and the way i had to deal with that was very much the old-fashioned sort of english way you know just get on with it and um and i suppose that then creates a level of 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 frustration tension emotion um that wouldn't have existed if it hadn't have been for for that situation so so that became you know part of me and there's not a day even now there's not a day go by where i don't think about her you know for all the good reasons but i you know after over a period of time i accepted what had happened but certainly coming into the professional football environment the tough environment that it was as 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 dark a time as I had, especially in my early days at Chelsea, and, and once those rumours started spreading about me, as dark a time as I had at Chelsea, it could never, ever be as bad as what I've been through as a teenager. So that gave me a resilience that was was never going to allow me to give up on something because other people put me in, the, in a situation where they didn't want me to succeed. And I say this to people all the time, Danny, is that if you're going to fail at something, fail on your own terms. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not good enough. You know, do it. You, you find out yourself if that's the case. Forgive me, I'm not a trained psychologist. <laughs> psychologist but I'm going to ask you this question: You told us that all your medals and mm. the glory of your football career is in a kit bag somewhere, not displayed around the house. Is that because you separate your life into the into two parts? When your mum was alive, and when your mum wasn't, so you don't you don't look back like that. I don't know. I mean, I th- I certainly think that that looking looking forward absolutely is partly to do with 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 that loss because you'd drive yourself mad wouldn't you if you kept saying why asking why you know and i did for many years you know why did she have to die why did this happen what were the reasons we all want we all want to understand and we want some sort of logical explanation for 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 these these tragedies but i realized quite quickly that that those questions are meaningless because it's happened. You have to accept that this has happened. And I think in a, in a sporting context, that, that mindset is very important as well because the cliche, you're only as good as your last game, is there for a reason because that is the mindset of a sports person is that you can't dwell on your successes. You have to park them, put them in the kit bag, mm-hmm. and then start again. 
you know every every opportunity that you get to 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 play a match um is is an opportunity to further your career or harm your career or fall backwards yeah yeah <laughs> and and so therefore surrounding yourself by part by the part with the past i is it might be right for people but it's not right for me and that's not how i live my life and i think that sort of mantra and that philosophy has always been a crucial part of my transition out of football into um you know a life without that that support network without that structure and 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 without that we only we know all the stories of how many sports people struggle and find it impossible to cope after they've left their chosen sport in that time between you know coming out and 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 who they are to the present day uh, i'd like to concentrate just now on your experiences playing for england in particular the 1998 World Cup. We get to the World Cup, playing three at the back. You at left, left wing back, beat Tunis in the opening round, lost to a late goal to a brilliant Romanian team. Mm. Um, let's be honest, Petrescu, your old teammate at Chelsea, who invented wing back play, in my opinion, was one of ten brilliant outfield players that Romania had. So I'm letting you off that. Although, <laughs> although I think their goal was very late. I think you were involved. I was in involved it. in the yeah. goal, and I got a huge amount of stick. For, it was for, actually for Dan goal. Petrescu who it got that Dan goal. It was Dan who scored, and yeah. what happened was we played well. Yeah, we 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 uh, uh, we played well. We 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 were perfectly within yeah. the sort of you know the the, st- the standard in which we were playing. We you were, were the best two teams in the group, so a draw yeah, would have been fine. Absolutely. But. And then Dan made a run from wing back right across the pitch, and I started tracking him, but I was playing catch up a little bit because I was expecting that at some point, as he was moving across the pitch forwards, that somebody would take him yeah so i i sort of followed him with the intention of somebody going my man or me passing him on to somebody mm-hmm. and nobody did so then a ball a long ball got played in so i ended up playing as, as a right center back almost chasing him and as we were going in towards the goal i remember thinking he's going to he's going to cut back because he's right very heavily right footed he's going to cut back so i i offered him the side yeah like the near did. post um, and as he went past me, he caught me in the face, which meant I stopped for a, a second. And then as I got going, he hit it and he beat Dave Seaman um, at the near post. But the, the pressure you're under as an international footballer in a tournament, when you have a part to play in a goal and you make a mistake, you know, clearly, mm-hmm. um, the, the response from the press was Incredible. Well, every move you make, every player oh, in the squad me. is under incredible. Um, it's sort of like a microscope. microscope. To yeah, use a, and, to use a and cliche. I got hammered for that. I remember we we didn't read the papers, but you found out what was going on, and they tore me to pieces. You know, and I was the scapegoat. And you look, you look what happened to Beckham subsequently. Yeah. Um, and it just showed the atmosphere that the that the press had towards the English team. And you know the funny thing is, the next game we played Colombia in the next game. Yeah. Um Beckham scored a, a, a great free kick. Um Darren, Darren Anderton scored. Yeah. I think we won th- did we win 3 2-0. 2-0. Yeah, yeah. And I remember going onto the pitch for that game feeling really anxious for myself because I felt and this is where the press well, not that they ever will understand, but the that that sort of negativity, and when it's, you know, to the point where it's it, it, it affects players' performance. And I remember going onto the pitch thinking, obviously we need to win the game. I need to do my bit, but my goodness, I can't afford to make a mistake today. The game in Saint Etienne, the last sixteen game against Argentina, 
is infamous because of the David Beckham sending off. But in fact, I thought it was a shame for England in many oh. ways. They played really well that night. They were ahead 2-1. That stupid goal that Zanetti was allowed to get coming up to half-time. I suppose it was your fault as well. I don't know. And Sol Campbell's perfectly good header. Mm. I mean, I don't. You would have been. You'd have been on the halfway line. I presume weren't up for the corners, Graham. I was. Um, so I was on the wall, edge of the wall for ah. the Zanetti. Um, yep. Uh, goal. And it, it's funny because you. There's some really good analysis to be done around that. We didn't. You get a. You get sort of briefed about set pieces of the opposition so what their corners are near post far post free kicks if that had if that had happened before that game I would hope it would have been flagged up with us that that in this situation they sometimes slide the ball down the side of the wall yeah the problem with the goal was that it's all about everything's about timing so the the moment Zanetti moves from the middle of the pitch behind the wall at what point is he somebody else's responsibility and at what point are they told and we didn't we didn't pick up on it and therefore the the split second it took for him to do that and the slow reaction from us as a team gave him the opportunity and to be fair to him he he, he took it well the Sol Campbell goal I was could because Beckham had been sent off I came off with about seven or eight minutes uh-huh. to go in the in the game because I was I was getting cramp really bad cramp in my uh, in my calves and so I, I I came off so I was as you a spectator screaming my head off when he scored because it was a perfectly good goal and then screaming my head off even more because Argentina broke and nearly scored at yeah. the other end you know not dissimilar to the uh, I always the say t- this Kim Mullen Nielsen was an unusual referee he's six foot six mm. so he was the only referee who could be looking down on the shoulder mm. that Campbell was alleged to have, uh, have have leaned on if he'd been five foot ten he would have just given the goal. Yeah, it was just a well. It, it, wasn't, it wasn't England's day. It no, wasn't and, England's and, day. and you're absolutely right about what you said. That performance by all of us was was something that to this day people still talk to me about, saying that how proud they were of the team that day. We we came off that pitch, sort of with our heads held high in the sense of 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 the performance. Um, and it just goes to show that the margins for success and failure are so fine and circumstances and chance um, can go with you or go against you. And I don't use that phrase lightly because I'm not, I'd never like to talk about luck. Um, but at some point, you know, things are down to chance. And that was one of those days. The rest of your ring career, where you played that, those were under Glenn Hoddle, of course. Then you uh, had the Kevin Keegan years um, before his resignation and that infamous game. You also played in the last game at the mm. old Wembley. That was my last game. Because Sven Joran Eriksson comes in and prefers Ashley Cole. Um, how do you look back on those last two managers and on your England career in general? Well, Kevin, you know, again, a hero of mine from his from his playing days. Always with Liverpool looked, with you, yeah. Looked up, looked up to him um, as, as a player. As a manager, I think he, he, he had all the enthusiasm and the passion for, for management. But maybe not the 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 sort of the technical by his own admission management skills. Um, and there's only so far you can get on clenching your fist and creating a great atmosphere within the team, especially at that level where there is very much you know it's it becomes chess. Um, Sven Jorn Eriksson when he took over, um, there was a transitional period where I felt I was still you know the the first choice fullback. Um, I missed Euro 2000 because of a recurrence of the injury I'd had in 98, which was a horrific ankle injury. Um, so, sorry, 
because I'd missed Euro 96. Yes. I, got, I, I, I had this ankle injury in 96. I had a recurrence of that in 2000. So I missed the Euros. And then when Ericsson um, was really in charge, he just refused to pick me. And it's funny because somebody on Twitter, uh, you mm. tweeted out some questions. questions for you, yeah. Somebody on Twitter said they'd heard that I'd applied in a competition to to yes. train with England. My next question. And what I actually did, a, a mate of mine, I got a great friend of mine called Matt Kenton. Him and I were at a big charity auction for the NSPCC, um, and there's a big football connection between the NSPCC mm-hmm. charity. Um, and there was an auction prize where you you could. Uh, it was a silent auction to win um, a training session with England, and that was when Ericsson was in charge and refused to pick me. <laughs> so what we did, he said, "We'll go halves." So we bid. I mean, we bid. It was about five grand or something. We'd bid on the silent auction, um, so that I could do. I could go and have a training session with him. Can you imagine? It yeah. would have been a, the best publicity stunt ever, wouldn't it? Um, and this guy came up to me. This very nice man. And he said, "Look," he said, "Is there any chance that you could just lay off the the be- the the silent auction?" He says, "I'm prepared to put another thousand pounds in." so that my son can go. Oh. Will you please just let it be? And I was like, yeah, go on. Then. I was quite relieved, really, because yeah. I don't know if I'd been able to go, but it was it was very funny. Um, Graham, you went back to Chelsea after the Blackburn team more or less fell apart after the, the great triumph of 95. Um, you're keen to tell me it wasn't just five million, but five and a half million pounds, a record fee for a defender. And you had some pretty good times back at Chelsea. They were starting to, this is pre-Abramovich course, Starting to win some trophies and be a, a much more powerful team than when you first went there. Well, they won the FA Cup that that season um, before before I'd signed mm-hmm. um, the '97 season, um, and, and they were a totally different club. The club I described in my first spell, chaotic, rhythm yeah, with and, rivalries, and lifestyle more than yeah. profession. Yes, um, and coming back, Glenn Hoddle had a huge part to play in that. When I left Chelsea, um, he wasn't far behind me in terms of arriving at Chelsea yep. and he changed the culture of the club he started bringing in some of the some of the European players started building that culture um, and when I signed Rude Hullet, Hullet was the uh, uh, manager and I walked into a dressing room that was really positive you had some fantastic characters you still had a core sort of English sort of um, feel Wise, to it Dennis Frank Wise was in the yeah, team, yeah Eddie Newton was yeah. still there I think um you know, although albeit a smaller sort of group of English players, um, it was still it still felt like an English football club. Um, but it also had that that sort of whiff of European culture and um, style, shall we say? Di Matteo was there, and of course Gianfranco, who yeah, Viali, would, would decorate any team. Absolutely, yeah. that period for me was, I think, my happiest as a football player because I felt like I belonged. I felt that players understood me. Um, I didn't need to prove myself um, in the same in the same way, and and being back in London was you know fantastic. Um, my my wife and I um, moved into into London, so it was a part of my career where I was definitely my happiest and was probably the most myself, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and 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 we continued with the run of, of form um, that they'd already started to, to, to have. We won, you know, the Cup Winners' Cup. You won the League Cup. Um, League Cup. Against Middlesbrough. Um, exactly. You won the Cup Winners' Cup. I think you missed the final through I injury. I missed the final through injury. Super yeah. Cup against Real Madrid. I mean, yeah. you're moving with the big powers of Europe by this stage. Yeah, definitely. And we, you know, we were close in, in terms of our league form as well. The one thing that, that 
let us down um, in in that in that in the pieces of the jigsaw for success uh, was the training ground. We trained at Harlington, which was near Heathrow, and it cost us so much in terms of injuries, morale. Um, you know, your training ground is where you spend ninety five probably percent of your time, and it was just, it was always a struggle. We had the the club invested in players, and we had different ma- a few different managers but the spirit of the team and the environment was was brilliant and that was epitomized i think by Gianfranco who when people say to me who was the best player you ever played with there were lots of players in partic- for particular reason that might be the best but the overall person that stands out is him a very successful time for chelsea you're obviously playing some of the best football of your career um, you're also getting into plenty of trouble, Graham. Some of it not of your making, some of it of your making. You were sent off against um, for hitting Sebastian Perez. There was an incident with Paul Ince. It always comes back to Liverpool. But I want to talk <laughs> for the next few minutes about this business um, of footballers deciding that because you read The Guardian and care what's going on in the world, that you must be gay in a world where there are no gay footballs, apparently. Um, and this comes to a head, I suppose. I mean, crowds had got into it too. Let's not just blame professional footballers. Mm. that were on Terrace is doing as well. In the game with Robbie Fowler, where Robbie um, was pointing to his backside and all the rest of it, there was a moment on television where Robbie Fowler's apologised for all of this. You know, looking back and saying he was stupid and all the rest of it. How how deeply affected were you by this? It was a campaign by your fellow pros and people on the terraces to undermine you by going on about this idea that you were somehow gay, even after you were married and all the rest of it. I think it, you know, you have to rewind to when it started, really, and and it was, you know. It started as a joke within uh, within the training ground at, at mm-hmm. Chelsea, and then before I knew it, it was on the terraces. And once it's out on the terraces, it, you're not getting that genie back in the bottle. Um, so I had to deal with it from a, you know, all my almost all my professional career. Right. It culminated in 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 what you know happened between Robbie and and myself. And what made it worse for me was when a fellow professional almost endorsed the rumours about me. You know, it's taken a long time for Robbie and I to sort of get to a point where. Um, he apologised, and I respect him for apologising. I'm not. I wasn't particularly interested in the time it took him to get there. It would have been easier for me if he'd apologised immediately afterwards. But you know, he wasn't in that in that position himself to to feel that it was a it, it was a priority for him. But subsequently, I'm I'm very straightforward in my life. Plenty of people make mistakes. I've made my own. I think if you if you're honest enough with yourself. Um, and apologize and hold your hand up when you have done something wrong. I think that says an awful lot about the person. It was a very delicate situation for me as well because you know I wasn't suggesting at any point in my career that that it's offensive to be rumored as being gay. Absolutely. But in the context of of the sport, it absolutely is. It can undermine your your position but going, you, at, you, at, you, at you the just, time you, of uh, I was playing. Accepting what you say, mm. um, that you at no stage made it, said, and, and nor do you believe there was anything wrong with people being gay. Um, at the same point, the, the relentless not relentlessness of it meant that you described in your book as like being bullied. And I hate to think about you going to work feeling you might be bullied. Yeah, but that was absolutely the case because, you know, you also have the right to sort of defend yourself in the sense that, you know, if you're not, if you're being accused of something or being um, labelled something that yeah. you're you're not, then you absolutely have to stand up um, for yourself. But it, it did feel, you know, from, from a young age um, as a, like a, like a bullying sort of tactic Um and it was very intimidating. And the burden that I had to carry through my football career 
and knowing that if the game went a bit quiet after 20 minutes, people would start singing songs. I could deal with that when I was in a really confident, strong place mm -hmm. in myself. But of course, you know, as any any person, when when you're maybe not as robust and in the right frame of mind, you do want to sort of stand up and shout, "Why are you do you know? Why are you doing this? You know, stop picking on me." Yeah, <laughs> and 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 so it's a difficult sort of um, balance to gauge. I, I was I'm, I'm a very positive person, so I've always tried to put my head in in the position where. If, if people are singing songs about you, are, are picking you out in a game, it's because actually they're threatened by you. So in a way, I'm, I was trying to say it was a backhanded compliment, but ultimately it was insulting, not just to me, but to gay people as well. I'm maybe unbelievably naive, and I often I am about these things. I actually believe that if a footballer came out now in the Premier League and said, I'm gay, 99% of the crowd would say, yeah, big deal. Get on with your job. Make sure you close down that corner. I actually think it wouldn't be a big deal anymore. Well, I certainly hope that's the case, and 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 I think there would be there would be a lot of attention for the for the player Thomas Hitzelsberger, who came out once yes. he retired, said he didn't want to talk about that whilst he was playing because he had he had so much he wanted to focus on as a player. He didn't feel that that extra attention would help his football career, and I respect that. The key for me is creating an environment where football players can play football no matter what their background is, whatever their beliefs are, whatever their sexuality is. I don't need to know about those people. They don't need to be, um, you know, uh, people that are forced to no. to, 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 to talk about um, their life choices. Um, but for me, the achievement will be creating the right environment where if you're a gay, young gay football player and you're good enough to be a professional football player and you want to do that, then I would hate to think there were other barriers that would stop that happening. Other than your own talent, yeah, absolutely. Sort of the turn of the century, 2001, 2002, um, you're playing very well and you're also, I, I think, probably the best season for Chelsea prior to the arrival of the Abramovich Millions. Yeah, we had, uh, we had a settled team. Uh, we had some fantastic, talented players, you know, the... You look at uh, Marcel Desailly was there, Frank Leboeuf as centre-backs, Albert Ferrer came in, the Barcelona full-back, Babayaro and myself on the left, you know, created a very strong relationship. So so the balance in the team was was excellent. Ranieri was in charge and when he came in, we had to, we had to, had to adapt to a very um, unique extrovert character who had different... Um, sort of style to, to what we were used to and that created a really good sort of atmosphere around um, around the training ground um, and we worked we worked well everyone says he's a lovely man he is he was fantastic in terms of you know the atmosphere he, cre he created he was very always smiling always positive um, and he had a team there very experienced team of players um, but also he had the tinker man um Mentality. side of him which yeah. which was frustrating for us because you'd work Monday to Thursday or Monday to Friday building up to a game on a Saturday then you'd come in on a Saturday and you'll suddenly say I've changed the formation and I've you know you're not playing now and you are and that's no way to prepare for a game so he, he would occasionally throw in the curveball what I loved about the team you know we were a mature team so we could sort of we could control that a little bit um, but equally 
we all liked each other. We used to socialize together. We, you know, we'd go out with the wives and girlfriends regularly. You know, there were group some groups that would go into London and and enjoy sort of, you know, good London restaurants. So we were a mature group of players on the whole that were very professional but also um got on very well. You lost the 2002 FA Cup final um, to, I believe it, how could you do it, to a Ray Parler Thunderbolt, which he tells me was a great shot and, the, and, and absolutely deserving of it. But actually, for that group of players, I think the most important player game came exactly a year later, where you played Liverpool the last day of the season and the winner would go into the Champions League. I think the, the rumour around the time was that if Chelsea didn't qualify for the Champions League, they were going out of business. But mm. if they managed to win the game qualify, there was a buyer in the wings. Now, we all know who the buyer was, but that was a critical game, I think, in the history of Chelsea Football Club. It certainly was. And it was my last game for the club. Which Did you know it was your last I didn't game know, the time? No, no, I didn't no. know at the time. Actually, I'd been told that if we won that game, I'd get a new contract. They always say that, As, as Gianfranco Zola had uh, they been told say as that, well. Graham. And that was his last game. So, um, yeah, there's a, a bit more to that story than, than sort of meets the eye. But going into the match, we knew the significance of the game. We'd heard rumours um, that the club was in financial difficulty and that there was potential for administration. And by qualifying for the Champions League and the money that that would then bring into the club would keep the club safe. We weren't aware that... Roman Abramovich was in the wings and that there was a potential buyer at that stage. Right. But just before we went out onto the pitch, um, Trevor Birch, who was the then, uh, I don't know if he was chief executive. He was, yeah. Um, he had some phony blowing title, yeah. And he, he came up to me in the tunnel and said, you need to play, you need to carry this team. You are, if you play well, they'll play well. And I was thinking, oh, thanks. thanks for that. Yeah, <laughs> really grateful. And he was, the panic in his eyes were, were was obvious. The other thing was, you know, we're very routine-orientated professional football players. And at home games, we stayed in our homes and came in on the morning of the game. The night before this game, we were taken to the Royal Lancaster and we stayed in the hotel and as, as if it was an away game. And Trevor Birch, in all his wisdom, he says sarcastically, uh, decided that it would be really good to bring in a motivational speaker the night before you play one of the biggest games in the club's history. So this Vietnam, American Vietnam vet came in and did this speech, which was incredible, it was inspirational. But afterwards, I felt like I'd had about 53 espressos. Yeah. And I wanted to, like, you know, abseil out of the Royal Lancaster, go into Hyde Park and set up a camp or, you know, do something. Probably a brilliant thing at the wrong time. That, that yeah, was, wasn't exactly. It? I didn't get to sleep till about four o'clock in the morning because <laughs> I was so wound up. But... We won the game. You played really um, well. So Trevor was right. He was right. I uh, Again, my last game for the club, um, I managed to finish on a high. I got one man of the match for that. Stephen Gerrard got sent off for a second yellow card. It was an awful tackle <laughs> on me in the on the, sort of around about the halfway line. Um, and uh, and yeah, we qualified for the, for the Champions League. The rest, as they say, is history. Your right was your last game. You then got um, moved on to Southampton. Graham, I dare I use the word, you were a make-weight in the deal that took Wayne Bridge <laughs> to Chelsea. Um, and what fun at Southampton. It's always fun at Southampton, isn't it? In the space of the two seasons you were there, you had Gordon Strachan, Paul Sturrock, Steve Wigley, Harry Red. Have I left anyone out? No. Was, Cl was, Cl was Clive Woodward no, in charge of the team after. at all? No, okay. he came <laughs> after me, thankfully. But, I, think he, I think he only arrived because he knew I was going. But, you know, Southampton for me was absolutely the perfect club to go to. Um, I wasn't going to get bullied by Chelsea in terms of the um, the, the make weight 
scenario. Um, I wanted to go to Southampton right. um, because I'd had, I respected them as a club. They're fantastically well run in terms of, you know, the spirit of the club, still the are, stadium. Cool. Still are. You know, the fans were great. I had had a relationship with Southampton since I was a boy. Um, had trials at Southampton. So there was a natural affinity there. Gordon Strachan was the manager who I had huge respect for. So I was really keen on going to Southampton. The point was, I didn't let Chelsea know that because there was no way I was going to let them think that it was going to be an easy an easy way out. And I was disappointed with the fact that I'd been at the club for 12 years and that you shouldn't ever be surprised, no, but you quiet. get treated like that on the way out. What's your relationship like with Chelsea today? Um, yeah, it's good. It's good. I mean, since I retired, I, I, I worked... I worked with Chelsea for some years. I, I was involved in the start of their found, club foundation, which is all their community programs. I've worked as an ambassador. Over recent, uh, probably over the re- recent two years, I've done less and less with them as the work that I'm doing in other areas has, has taken priority. Um, and they're a club that I always have a, a, you know, have a very close affection for, but the club doesn't sort of perform without its faults. Um, I think that's safe to say. So I'm, I, I think I'm a critical friend of the club as opposed to somebody that's blindly loyal to, to, to the, the club that gave me 12 years of, of football. I guess it's fair to say that, as is the case with so many footballers uh, as heading toward the last couple of seasons of their injuries always start to be the issue, don't they? You know. Yeah, and I you started... Can, you can still play now, I presume, but mm. you have to have a very fit body to do it. Exactly, and I had, uh, I had a horrific injury back in 95 where my ankle was and my foot was literally facing the wrong way <laughs> and that's not an exaggeration no no it's not um i've still got seven screws and a plate in my ankle so to to continue to play at the highest level with that sort of injury history is always going to be a struggle i was fortunate i managed to play till i was 36 despite that injury whereas most players that play to their mid and then late 30s generally haven't had no they tend to be the ones who've cor- avoided the bullet of, of yeah, one big of a injury big injury um yeah. and the frustrating thing for me and probably Southampton and the, certainly the fans was that as I was getting towards the end of my career, that, that an- ankle injury started to co- give me problems in my muscle, in my calf, because Displacement, there's, a, yeah. there's, a, there's a chain there. Um, and I would get these very small tears in the fascia between my muscles in my left calf. The ankle injury was on the right, but it was so frustrating because I'd go and play and I'd be fine. And then... Train Monday, okay. Train Tuesday, suddenly, 20 minutes into training, it would just go. And then I, I wouldn't play for three weeks. And I spent more and more time in the gym, maintenance, not being out with the with the team on, on the training field. And I did. I got to a point where I thought, you know, I've had a fantastic career in terms of the time I've played. And I didn't want to remember it for, for sort of hanging on. So I chose quite early on in that second season at Southampton to uh, to retire at the end of it. Little did I know... That as we got to the end of the season, so we got near with the trapdoor of relegation, and that was the backdrop to my retirement. In doing this program for the past two hundred editions of it, some people from all over the world and men and women from all over the world of sport, but the men who play cricket to have this horrible problem with depression when they stop because they spend they think they spend every moment every day playing the cricket. It's not like an hour and a half a day, and the disease with footballers, if it is a disease, and maybe that's not the right word, the condition with footballers is divorce. For somehow football just doesn't seem, particularly when people first retire to allow for happy relationships. And footballers are often onto their second and third marriage, and they've got a great relationship with their kids and all the rest of it. But there's something, I think, a bit regretful about that. You seem to have avoided it. 
Well, yeah, and no, I, I think you have to take it it's on like a case by... It's like you get married by, when you were 20, did you? Well, you? exactly, yeah. and I think there's, you have to take it on a case-by-case case basis. Sure. But certainly from my own experience, um, a lot of football... Excuse me, a lot of football players get married very young. They become very different people during that, that football career. And inevitably, when you stop doing something that is so intense, so absorbing, so revolved around you... Everything revolves around you as a, as a professional sportsman. What you eat, what you drink, when you sleep, when you're at home, when you're away, whether you can go to someone's birthday or not, it's all defined by, you know, the, the structure of, of, of your of your role. And it's funny because you've said it a couple of times about, you know, an hour and a half a day. You belong to that sport 24 hours a day. You really do. So you might physically train for an hour and a half of that day. And of course, there are times at which you relax. That sport, if you're going to be the best, you can. That sport has to own you for that time, and which means everyone else around you has to give you has to make sacrifices and 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 know that they're going to play second fiddle to you during that that time. Therefore, I think when you come out the other side of a sport, any sport, you lose very quickly. You lose that structure. You lose identity, and and invariably you can lose your own self worth and and depression and who am i and not being not being content with what's around you because you're living starting to live in the past um i think can be a very destructive force and i would think that is fundamental to why different sports have these have these issues Let, let's let's assume you live another 50 years shall we <laughs> let's hope well, what are you hoping for in those years for yourself and the people around you well to continue to experience new things and and learn I've, I've always i've always had this thirst for for knowledge and wanting to find out about things um and 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 just get to know either people or subjects so i think i think you know life has that you have that opportunity and you know my family my children their development is is absolutely vital the most important thing um and they're getting older now 17 and, and 14 and you good at football um good at sport both of them but not neither of them specifically football um so so i think you know their development and and sort of uh, and and watching them grow is 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 what i'm sort of really keen about just to sort of see how that but process unfolds there an age now where they might start hiding it from you yeah how exactly they're developing. i've got to be prepared for that you seem very happy is that the right thing to say yeah i am happy i've got you know i've got as i've said my family mm. you know we we're, we have a fantastic mm. family unit um we have some great friends um we get trying to get the balance between work and life is always a challenge mm-hmm. um but that's one i'm going to struggle to maintain and fight for my my sort of f- free time with my family as as much as sort of my passions around work tennis you know i i, I took up tennis when i re- retired from football and i'm i've learned year year on year since i've been playing tennis that i can only ever get better at tennis yeah, I can only ever get worse at football. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's quite a nice balance to have because that it keeps your feet on the ground, keeps you motivated. It's a very technical sport, tennis. And every time I get to a level and improve and then step up to the next level, I realise that I'm not actually as good as I thought I might have been. But it's it's part of my psyche that I like that challenge. I like actually not being that good at something and trying to get better at it. And you're 20 yards where you can't punch anyone in tennis. <laughs> no, there's... the. The etiquette of tennis, thankfully, is is far, far better. You've been listening to an archive edition of Talk Sports, My Sporting Life with Danny Kelly. Thanks for listening. 
And make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast and Spotify for more top talk sport content. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.